Anyways, um, if you would please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. That's what we're going to be studying today. Um, we're going to take a look at, at a theme of, of hypocrisy. I know it's Valentine's Day. You know, like, I was expecting to hear a sermon on love. Well, I preached for Mother's Day, and I gave you like a double amount of love on Mother's Day. So I'm just going to get back into something that's really near and dear to my heart, something that was, I've been really passionate about uh, working in youth ministry, something that I've been passionate about as I wrestled through it myself, and it's the theme of hypocrisy. Before I do that, I just want to pray real fast, ask God to, you know, this has been a really hard sermon on me this week because I, I've had to constantly be confronted with my own hypocrisy, and that's not an easy thing to dwell upon all week long. So uh, would you bow your heads and, and hearts so we can pray together and, and pray that God would use me uh, to, to teach on this topic. God, I come before you in the name of Jesus. And I ask, Lord, as, as I preach this sermon, that it would not be my preaching, but it, that it would be your word, God. That it would be your word that convicts all of our hearts, not just, not just some, Lord, but all of us. I, I'm not pointing the finger at anybody because I know when when the finger's pointed, there's one still pointing back. And so, Lord, I pray that, that you would do a work in our hearts. If there is any hypocrisy in us, Lord, I pray that you would uproot it. That I pray that you would expose it. I pray that the world that, is, that constantly watches the church and watches the Christian would look at us and see purity of heart. And that we would be good lights and salt of the earth to be put on display in this dark world we live in. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, why are we talking about hypocrisy anyways? <clears throat> First of all, I'm not pointing the finger at anybody here today. If anything, this is, this is a topic that's close to my heart that I saw in myself that really made me put a foot down for Jesus. Because I couldn't li live with one foot in the world and one foot in the church any longer. It made me sick. But the charge of hypocrisy against the church is a common criticism toward the secular world and toward Christians today. This is something I've heard uh, uh, throughout, throughout the years, especially being in youth ministry for the last 13 years. It's that, that teenagers are really keenly aware of, of what their authority figures are teaching them, right? If you're a teenager here, you're, you're observing what people are teaching you, but you're also looking at how people are living their lives. And, and you really want to see if the two match up. According to LifeWay research, in the top five reasons that young adults aged 13 to 30 stopped going the t to church, the number two reason is that they saw the church and the people within the church as acting hypocritically. That, that's, that's, that, that hurts my heart. That really bothers me. And I hope by studying this passage on hypocrisy within, in the context of the real false teachers of Jesus' time, that we would really see what hypocrisy looks like, which would, I hope, cause us to examine ourselves so that we could strive to be good ambassadors of Christ in the dark world that we live in. Oh, and it's not just teenagers that are, that are aware of the hypocrisy in this world, right? I mean, we all should be aware of the hypocrisy around us. I'm reminded in, in current affairs uh, of a restaurant in, in Redondo Beach who was ordered to shut down their outdoor dining operations. But instead, what did they do? They, they bought a banner. It had the French Laundry banner put over their own, calling out the hypocrisy of, of the false political leaders in our society who think they're above the law. In other news, you might remember the story of, of Leland Yee. He was another California politician out of San Francisco. Uh, he started out as a school board member. He worked his way up to district supervisor, assemblyman, and then eventually a state senator. He was re rewarded with meritorious service for his uh, legislation on gun control. But in 2015, he was found out by an undercover FBI agent to be smuggling semi-automatic rifles into the Philippines. Yi pleaded uh, guilty for felony charges of money laundering, public corruption, gun traffic, 
gun trafficking and, and racketeering. And even after all that, he only spent five years in federal prison. Hypocrisy. I'm even reminded of in local news, the $1.2 billion that has been allocated to combat homelessness on the west side of Los Angeles, only to find that two-thirds of that money went towards soft costs like consulting and architecture instead of helping the people that are hurting on the streets. We, we wave our fists at, at our leaders that act in ways that are false, that in ways that undermine and exploit and take advantage of the people that they're supposed to help. The vulnerable, the weak of society, and they, they use the resources for dishonest gain. Even religious leaders today, you see them on TV, they exploit their flock and take advantage of them. And this is what the secular world looks at, and this is who they point the finger at. I thank God that we have pastors in this church that are committed to the authority of the Bible, that are committed to teaching really hard things out of Scripture, that are countercultural, And they do their best. They do their best. They don't do it perfectly, but they do their best to shepherd the flock of God with compassion. And this is not, this is not many churches today. And when we see churches and church leaders act contrary to the clear teaching of Scripture, it brings reproach upon the name of Christ, the bride, his church. This is really personal to me at 19 years old. I get choked up thinking about this. At 19 years old, I was living as a hypocrite. I was living with one foot in the world, one foot in the church, and it made me sick. And when, when Christ finally got a hold of my heart, I had to choose one way or the other. And luckily, I was wise enough to be observant and to watch my friends that were walking the path of darkness. And I chose to walk with Christ. Even being in the military, though, I, I, I sought out to preach the gospel to my fellow soldiers. And one soldier in particular, his name was Sergeant Bales. He was an L.A. County Sheriff. He worked in the, in the county jail system. And as I shared the gospel with him, he pointed out, Oh, you're a Christian, like, like one of those inmates that come, have you know, come to Jesus moments in prison or in jail. Not to just find them two weeks later back in jail. Christians are a bunch of hypocrites, he would say. And this hurt me. So this sermon, I hope, is, is a good place to start as we take inventory of our own hearts to see if there are any false ways within us. But church, let me preach to you that even when we do fail, it is good to know that although we have no power within ourselves to uproot our own hypocrisy, we have one who came and kept his word perfectly. Amen? Even to the point of death, even death on a cross, that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is one of the most glorious truths in Scripture. And our God who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Spirit did not leave us alone in this world to tackle the monster of sin on our own, but He sent the Son to us in grace and truth to represent mankind and to rescue us from the hell that we deserved. The punishment of sin is death. And not just physical death, but eternal separation from the love of God but the free gift of righteousness comes from His Son. And not only that, but God the Father and God the Son sent God the Spirit to be our teacher, to be our convictor, and to be our sanctifier, to slowly but surely work out this sin within us and sanctify us and uproot our sin. And we know that hypocrisy is, is just one of those many sins but we have one who stands in our place, who is the antithesis of hypocrisy, who is the antithesis of a hypocrite, who obeyed the Father perfectly, who stayed true to his word, who never sinned, and who was the perfect sacrifice for sin. I know this is Valentine's Day, and I know this isn't your typical Valentine holiday sermon, but 
Church, every sermon should be a Valentine's sermon. Every sermon should declare the love of God that He sent the Son on our behalf to give us eternal life. That Jesus came to snatch sinners on their way toward hell and bring them into His family by His grace. And praise God that He has positioned us sinners as sinless, positioned and purchased by the blood of Christ and covered with the life of Christ so that no one could snatch us from His hand. Yet at the same time, we still have a mission to do, right? He hasn't taken us home yet. We have a mission to do. We must wage war against the sin within us, against the sin that still thinks it has its way within us. So with our pursuit of being more Christ-like, I pray that, that our thoughts and our reflections would match the psalmist in 139 that says, Search me, O God. Know my heart and try my anxious thoughts. And if there be any way hurtful within me, lead me in the way of everlasting life. But as we see, and we will see in Matthew 23, that was not the prayer of the hypocrite. That was not the prayer of the Pharisee. This was not the prayer of the religious leader. Their ways were false. In Matthew 23, Jesus will expose the hypocrisy of false religious leaders and petition the crowds to follow the way of the true righteous one, the true rabbi, the true teacher, the Christ, rather than the way of the hypocrite. This passage is good for us, church, because hypocrisy is a serious charge against his church, and we need to be all the more watchful of our lives that we are living as good ambassadors of Christ until he calls us home. With that in mind, I just want to give you a brief context of the Gospel of Matthew, who this guy is, if you don't quite know. His name is Matthew. His Jewish name was Levi. And uh, he was a tax collector in the region of Galilee. In his book, it's an ancient account of the life of Jesus. It was probably written around the 50s or 60s A.D. And it records the life of Christ life of Jesus of Nazareth from a Jewish context. We see this to be the case as you open up to the first chapter in Matthew as you see Jesus' genealogy, his ancestry.com. He records uh, that he is king from the line of Abraham, from the line of David. It's not just his ancestry though, he is the perfect person to write a, a, a record an orderly account of Jesus' life. You see, Matthew was a tax collector. He worked for Rome. He collected money due to Caesar. And nobody likes tax collectors, right? Nobody liked them then. Nobody likes them now. But that's not the point. You see, Matthew, as a tax collector, had a busy job. He would constantly go from house to house, making sure that people paid up. He'd have to write down if they paid up, if they didn't pay up, how much they paid, how much they owe, so on and so forth. And he'd have to report that to the proper authorities. But during Matthew's time, it's not like they had binders. It's not like they had your college-ruled notebooks. They had uh, parchment papers, papyri. And it wasn't like they, they carried around a whole stack of these. So Matthew would have to write in abbreviations, shorthand, if you will, to fit everything in, in small small places on one piece of paper. He would have been a professional at recalling names, uh, details, copying lengthy, lengthy sermons, like the Sermon on the Mount, even word for word. It's possible. Take a court reporter. And like the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 23, is another detailed sermon delivered by Jesus. In fact, Matthew chapter 23 is Jesus' last public sermon his last public sermon. He preaches a warning of hypocrisy in the false religious leaders of his day. These were the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the lawyers. These were the revered men of his time. These were the religious conservatives that didn't want the government infringing on their daily Jewish life and their Jewish values. And Matthew was a tax collector for the government, so guess what? He was probably stoked to write against these false religious leaders. In fact, Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13, uh, Matthew writes about his own calling to be a disciple of Jesus. And in this context, he, he, he details the Pharisees and how they were critical 
of Jesus calling Matthew and hanging out with such tax collectors and sinners. But of course, the Pharisees didn't see themselves as sinners, which is a big problem. Matthew's record of confrontational remarks to the Pharisees were many, 28 of them to be exact. The first one happened in Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, uh, from John the Baptizer, calling them a brood of vipers. All throughout Matthew's gospel, the crowd was strictly warned about false leaders time and time again. Now here's the real escalation of force. In Jesus' last sermon, in the end of these conflict narratives, Jesus ramps up. John the Baptist had just been beheaded. Jesus goes to a solitary place to pray and to reflect on what's about to happen. And that's when he turns his ministry from Galilee to Jerusalem. And he makes his way down because he knows what is headed for him. Death. And as he gets to Jerusalem, we see the Pharisees show up in almost every chapter to the end of Matthew. With that said, let's take a look at Matthew chapter 23. Oh man, this is a mess. Okay, I'm there. Good thing for these bookmarks. Now if you look in, in Matthew chapter 22, you can see that the, the, the Sadducees have just been like squashed. They asked him a question, they've been squashed, they're done. The Pharisees ask him two more questions, and that's the end of their questioning. Jesus is now about to pronounce his woes. So look at Matthew chapter 23 verse 1. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. That's to say they have lots of authority. Therefore, all that they tell you and do observe, but do nothing according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to even move a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they brought in their phylacteries. They lengthen their tassels on their garments. They love the places of honor and banquets and the chief seats in the synagogue and respectful greetings in the marketplaces to be called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi, for there is one teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone your father, for your father is one. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader. That is Christ. And the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. And then here, look in verse 13. Here it goes. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourself, nor do you allow those entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses for a pretense. You make long prayers, therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Holy moly. Talk about escalation of force there. As Jesus mentioned before, he, he, he takes this aggressive altercation to the max. I've entitled this point, Round One, Corrupting the Kingdom. This is like a boxing match that Jesus is in right here. He's in an MMA fight, and he's going to score knockdowns in every single round. With each denunciation begins with this word, woe. A woe is an, is an exclamation of judgment upon God's enemies, or of misfortune of oneself. You might remember Isaiah 6, woe to me, for I am ruined. Or in the ministry of Jesus, uh, over sadness for those who fail to recognize the ministry of the Messiah in their own sinful condition. You think of the woes he pronounced on the certain cities just chapters before this who rejected the Messiah and said it'd be worse for Sodom and Gomorrah, it would be worse for them in the judgment than it would be for Sodom and Gomorrah, which is history's most evil and wicked cities because they rejected the Messiah. Those woes conclude the dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees. He's not talking to them anymore. He's not talking to them anymore. He is just going to pronounce these judgments and be done with them. Jesus referred to these groups as hypocrites. This is the scribes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the lawyers. 
A hypocrite was literally a pretender in a drama who wore a mask. That is literally the term hypocrite. A modern uh, definition of hypocrite is one who uh, claims to have moral standards or beliefs to which one's behavior does not even conform. In these select cases, the Pharisees were seen as people who say and act one way, but are in reality completely and diametrically opposite. The Pharisees were living for human approval in the name of divine approval. The Pharisees were, were great pretenders. They pretended to love and obey God and worship God, but they were far from his righteous standards. They shut people out of the kingdom, preventing them or distracting them from truly worshiping or obeying God. Part of the way they would do this was through the traditions of the elders. The traditions of the elders. They taught other Jews to hold traditions on the same level that they held Scripture. The Pharisees, they were the teachers and the keepers of the law. They should have had the key to the kingdom. But through their hypocrisy, they were blinded because they rejected the Messiah. Do you remember who the key to the kingdom was given to? It was given to, first and foremost, Peter, but all the apostles. And what was the key? The key was the gospel. Another way Pharisees would do this was by stepping in the way of Jesus' teaching and his mission. Jesus came to bring good news to Israel. However, when he was trying to faithfully preach that and bring that good news, the Pharisees would interject and interrupt his teachings, preventing the crowds from hearing the good news. Years ago, about six years ago, I was taking some youth kids to an orphanage in, in uh, Tecate, Mexico. And while we were there, now this, this ministry was a little questionable, but while we were there, we were bringing water to this village who had uh, no running water, and so they would fill up this giant tanker full of water, and they would bring them uh, the water and fill up their water basins. And this one time we, we were there, I thought it was a fitting example about when Jesus was with the woman at the well and, and he says, uh, do you want to drink living water? I have water that never runs dry. I have a well that never runs dry. If you drink from me, you'll have eternal life. So as I preached that to them through a translator, one of the guys who worked at this orphanage interjected and said, he's wrong. You don't have to believe in Jesus. All you have to do is believe in God. I was like, what? Are you kidding me? This is a Christian ministry orphanage. It was insane to me. Corrupting the kingdom. Preventing the kingdom from being offered to people who have never heard. The second woe in verse 14, which may or may not be in your Bible. It might be in brackets. It's not in the, the older manuscripts. Is, is about how the, the Pharisees devour widows' houses. In fact, uh, if you remember the story of the, the widow who brought her last penny to the offering, offering box, you remember that one? Uh, that's not about how great and glorious she was. The Pharisees stand at the offering box and they take this woman's last dollar. It's to show you how the Pharisees were not caring for the vulnerable of their society. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine if we had a widow who was losing her house and she came to the offering box and she dropped her last paycheck and we as a church take that money from her and she loses her home and everything she has? That would be quite hypocritical of the Christian church. In the final judgment in this section, condemn the Pharisees for traveling great distances across land and sea to make a proselyte. Uh, a proselyte was just a Gentile convert to Judaism. And it's not uncommon for Jews to do this, but when they went over uh, seas to do this, it was considered as somewhat of a prize. It's like today, you know, today's modern-day uh, cult missionaries who go overseas and, and would make somebody even more zealous than they are for their false gospel. This is what the Pharisees were doing, and they, they had a prize at the end of the day for that. And they, they, he uses some strong language here, doesn't he? That they're more fit for hell. What is this word hell? It is the, the word Gehenna in the Greek. And it's, uh, 
derived from a name outside of the valley uh, in Jerusalem called the Valley of Hinnom. And this is where they burned poop. Can I say that? No? Okay, sorry. Refuse. This is where they burned trash and refuse. It was a disgusting place. It was obviously unclean. This is also a place where, in the Old Testament where the worshipers of Molech, the Canaanite god, and their followers would sacrifice their living children on an altar. Scary. And it was commonly a, a fitting illustration for Jesus's, Jesus's uh, examples of what eternity would look like without God, without receiving the gospel. These first round of woes is a huge blow to the Pharisees. And it's very eye-opening to the crowds who were there. It was clear that the Pharisees' goal was to corrupt the kingdom to corrupt the kingdom and advance their own rather than advance Christ's kingdom. And it would be my prayer today that it would not be our will that would be done but His. And as I apply this a little bit loosely, but the question is that we have to ask ourselves, why are we here? Why are we here? Are we here to sell insurance or to grow our business or to have a sense of uh, community or to bring our kids up in a moral standard? All those things are, are fine. They are. But does that replace being here to hear the good news of the gospel, to rejoice in God for His amazing grace, and to join in unity with other regenerated sinners on this mission to make God known and to know Him? There's one beloved pastor in the South Bay who, in fact, came to church back in the 70s to sell Amway. <laughs> to try to get customers for Amway, his Amway business. Little did he know that God would save him not, not weeks after he started coming to that church. He, were, he became the pastor of that church, actually. And many years later, over 40 years later, we have seen thousands of people come to faith through this man's ministry, obviously through Christ's work in him. And this brings us to round two. Round two. Majoring in the minors. Majoring in the minors. Let's look at round two, starting in verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold of the temple or the gold that sanctified, or the temple that sanctified that gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the offering is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering. Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears by both the altar and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by both by the temple and him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and who sits, him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Ouch! The second set of judgment woes, which constituted the third and fourth in this pair of uh, four cycles, Jesus seemed to, to focus here on legal matters. It was called the Holocaust. It was Jewish oral, oral traditions that are confined within the Mishnah. What's the Mishnah? Just what I said. It's Jewish oral traditions written down. Jesus said, you say, you say, which assumes that it was not a command from God, but rather a tradition of the scribes and Pharisees. Pharisees had even at this time begun using surrogate names for God so that if they, if they made an oath to God, they could go back on it because, oh, I didn't actually say it in the name of God. In this third woe, Jesus called out these traditions. He exposed their error. He indicts them on charges of actually breaking the law when they're trying to uphold the law. This sermon was intense, as you could already see, but it's also filled with satire making these serious Pharisees look like a laughingstock. I can even imagine Jesus preaching it, calling them blind guides and walking around like a blind man trying to follow another blind man. 
Jesus' rebuke of their oath-taking rituals wasn't anything new. He, he preached about this during the Sermon on the Mount, right? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Do not swear by Jerusalem. The Sermon on the Mount, in fact, and this sermon are very similar. There's a lot of parallels between Jesus' first sermon and Jesus' last sermon in Matthew. And now by exposing the reality that the Pharisees did not have a problem breaking their own oaths, swore to the temple, and showed that they had real, uh, really no love for God within them. Because whether you're swearing by the temple, whether you're swearing by the gold in the temple, whether you're swearing by the offering, or the offering in the temple, he says you are still swearing by him who sits in the seat of the temple. God himself. Alongside oaths, the fourth woe charged these Pharisees and false religious leaders that they're, uh, of that of their offering. Jesus condemned them for tithing mint and dill and cumin, but did not offer their justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And in fact, in Mark's account of this very sermon, uh, right after it, he talks about what I explained previously with the widow's might. And he calls out these Pharisees of robbing widows and neglecting to show them mercy. Tithing was a, a very important practice among the Pharisees because it was the practice of tithing that the priesthood was maintained. This was yet another parallel between the, uh, the sermon which exposed the, the uh, Pharisees by warning them and their disciples to not let their religious deeds be seen before men. But here the Pharisees, actually, I know we're not a church of props or anything, but I feel like I do youth ministry so I could use some props. I brought some cumin from home, right? And here they go, here they go, you know, they're like, oh, I'm going to tithe my cumin. Oh, that's, that's good enough. Tithe my, I got a camel coming later, by the way. I'm just kidding. They're tithing the, the, the smallest amount of, of, of things that, that, that are required by the offering, but they're neglecting the weightier matters. Matthew 9.13, uh, referring back to Hosea 6, says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Even the Old Testament, when pe God's people were caught up in their own religious systems, he told them that he required them to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with their God. In Micah 6.8, the Pharisees were in utter opposition to God's requirements for the sake of external religiosity and oral traditions. It was so bad that Jesus used this graphic illustration of two animals, the gnat and the camel. These are the two, uh, one, one is the smallest of unclean animals, the other one is the largest of unclean animals in Leviticus chapter 11. So he uses this smaller to larger, and he does that often, right? Uh, take the speck out of your own eye before you take the log out of somebody else's. Uh, it's hard to enter the kingdom of God. You've got to be like a camel entering the eye of a needle. He's using these illustrations frequently. The, the illustration could have been a play on words too as they did that frequently as the word gnat was galma and the word for camel was gamla. They were so similar that Jesus uses these expressions as the smallest and the largest. But, but are the Pharisees concerned about the larger matters? No. I love how the Holman Christian Standard Bible puts it. He says, you are willing to, you know, pick a, pick a little fruit fly out of your wine, but you're not even concerned about gulping down a camel. They were offended, I'll tell you that. Their attempt to be righteous was pathetic. We need the antithesis of hypocrisy. That is what we need. We need true righteousness. We need the true righteous one. We need true justice and true mercy and true faithfulness. Does that remind you of anyone? I hope it does. And I hope you're not thinking, me, 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 that's me. All of our attempts to be righteous on our own strength will fail. But there is one who came and conquered the world. God incarnate, Jesus of Nazareth, who is fully just, fully merciful, and fully faithful. The religion of the Pharisees is bound by a list of do's and don'ts, and I pray that you would never come to church and hear, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. That is not it. 
the gospel is not a list of do's and don'ts. It is a list of done. There is one thing on that list, and it is done. That salvation comes to you as a free gift by the grace of God through faith alone in Christ alone. And the Pharisees, they, they majored in the minors. They take the minor things and they make them huge, a huge deal. But Christ majored in the majors. We cannot be just on our own, but Christ brings justice and he brings justification. Romans 3.21 says in following, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. But it is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Because in God's merciful restraint, in verse 25, he let the sins previously committed go unpunished. Praise God for the demonstration, that is, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be the just one and the justifier of many. That is the one who has faith in Jesus. Even John 1, 1 John 2, 1 says that, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin if anyone sins. He is an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Let us never read scripture and, and, and look at ourselves as, as righteous. That was the way of the hypocrite, the way of the Pharisee. Apart from Christ and attempting to be righteous on our own, we would be just like the Pharisees and the hypocrites. But in Christ, he liberates us from the guilt and condemnation of this world. And at the same time, we have a lot to do in this world, don't we? We have a lot to do. And we, as Christians, should be leading the way in those things. We should be leading the way as in mercy toward homelessness, toward homes for the orphans, toward friendship to the stranger and the lonely, service toward the widow, reconciliation and racial divide, and love and friendship toward the LGBT community. Those are hard things. But those are the things in which the, the world looks at the Christian and calls them Pharisees and hypocrites because we are sometimes last to do those things. And we don't operate in those areas like the Pharisee. Oh, look at me. Look at all the children I'm adopting. Look at all the homeless I'm helping. We do it out of love for Christ and worship for Christ and for one another. Round three. I'm going to go faster in these last two rounds. Round three was investing in impurities. The Pharisees were investing in impurities. Coming to the third part of these judgments, Jesus continued to build on the previous two, considering finer and weightier matters of the law, internal and external matters of the law. Let's look at uh, verse 25 to 28, please. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, so that on the outside it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but the inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear as righteous men, but inwardly are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The Pharisees were investing in their impurities. The washing of cups and bowls is a vivid picture to the crowd. Could you imagine? Say you're eating a bowl of chili, right? Some of you love chili, some of you hate chili. I know, my wife hates chili. I love it. Wish you'd serve it more. But anyways, if you were to get a bowl of chili and you'd eat it and you just left it on the counter for a week. What would the inside of that bowl look like? Sorry to ruin your lunch. And what if, what if somebody came over and you were hosting them and you were like, look at my bowl, it's so beautiful, and you ended up serving them soup in this bowl of crusty old chili. You're like, oh, that's gross. I got to take a step back. Rather than having the true, a, a true concern for internal matters like humility and mercy and sacrifice, the Pharisees were pointing out how beautiful the outside of their bowl was rather than being concerned with what was inside. He was, Jesus wasn't denouncing the practice of ritual washing. He was just giving an illustration of, of the minor and major things that are going on in their culture. And the sixth woe uh, of the Pharisees had to do with ceremonial purity, the cleanliness of the outside of the tomb, which would have been uh, relative to the care that the ancestor took of that tomb. But if the ancestors weren't there, 
they would whitewash them. Uh, there was people employed in the crowds that would whitewash the tombs. This was important to, especially during this time, this is the last week of Jesus' life, right? It's the last week of Jesus' life. And Passover is just days away, right? And so what do you have, who do you have coming in for Passover? Everybody in Israel. Everybody's coming in for Passover. So on the 15th day of Adar, uh, pilgrims traveling from Jerusalem for Passover, they wouldn't want to stumble upon the tombs, right? Because if you stumbled upon a, a tomb of a dead body, what would that make you? Unclean. Unclean. So they would whitewash the tombs outside of Jerusalem. They would pressure wash them so that passerbys and, and those pilgrims coming in for Passover would, would be able to see them and steer clear of them. Ironically, ironically, these Pharisees were like those whitewashed tombs. In the crowds, this would have been a vivid example of those who were coming in from Passover and hearing Jesus' teaching and showing that the Pharisees are nothing but dead men's bones. Church, we too, we too would really like to look put together on the outside, right? I mean, there, there is a, a saying, your Sunday best, right? And that doesn't just deal with attire. That's your, that's your smile on your face too, right? I pray that we would be a community here at Delray that could be real with each other. That when we're hurting on a Sunday, that we would tell somebody we're hurting. I remember one time I got in a fight with my wife. Yeah, it happens sometimes. I do that. And it was a Sunday morning, right before church. It was like about being late or something. I'm very punctual. And, and we got in this fight, and I'm like, I'm going to church by myself. And I come to church, and I'm like, I felt like a hypocrite. I'm like, I can't be happy right now. I can't be joyful. I just got in a fight with my wife. And so I had to pull somebody outside and be like, I just got in a fight with my wife. I'm so pissed off right now. I'm so mad. But you know what? That brother was able to pray with me and help me through what I was hurting and dealing with. I pray that we would be a community that wouldn't hide anything. That we wouldn't be whitewashed on the outside, but filthy and hurting on the inside. Let's, let's be a community that's real. Finally, in round number four, seventh and final woe is the most climactic woe. Let's read verses 29 to 36 real fast. 29 to 36. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been a part of the shedding of blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourself that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up the measure of guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How do you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of you whom you kill and crucify, some who you scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And Jesus drops the mic. He's done with them. The religious leaders built the tombs of the prophets, yet they were about to put the greatest prophet and the greatest Messiah in his own tomb. They were about to put him to death. The judgment would come upon that generation. That generation. While the scribes and Pharisees say that we would have never persecuted the generation that put those Pharisees or those prophets to death, they will be the generation that is woed. Although they built the tombs, they were the persecutors of those who preached the truth. Jesus told them to fulfill what their fathers had begun, begun, begun namely, the conspiracy of putting Christ to death. Jesus held nothing back. He said, you brood of vipers, you serpents, just like John the Baptizer's ministry in the first scene with the Pharisees. Again, Jesus is, is circling back around to John's ministry. He's putting his ministry to rest, and he's also putting his own ministry to an end. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, said John. And here is Jesus how shall you escape 
being sentenced to hell. This is ironic. It's the parallels between Jesus' ministry and John's ministry. It's the parallels between the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' final sermon. And then suddenly Jesus speaks here in future tense. He says that if he, if he uh, were now the prophet standing before them prophesying oracles of judgment, the prophets and wise men coming after him would no doubt be his disciples, would continue in this ministry of death by the prophets there on earth, knowing that some of his disciples would be killed and persecuted. And notice that it says, scourged in the synagogues, that is by their own people. These false leaders would be guilty of all the blood shed of the prophets throughout the entire canon of scripture. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, this is the entire sweep of the canon of scripture. Zechariah being the first one murdered in Genesis chapter 3, and Zechariah being the last one because Second Chronicles is the last book in the Hebrew canon. I know Malachi is in our English version, but in the Hebrew version, Zechariah, or Second Chronicles is the last one, and he was the last murdered in the Hebrew canon. Consequently, the followers of Jesus taught, ought to prepare for the imminent and continued persecution of his followers, which reminds us, church, to apply this to the 21st century, that there will be imminent persecution against Christ's church. Standing up for Christ on, the, on a day-to-day is a battle, and it will be costly, and it will continue to be more costly. But that is how we know how true it is. Because why? Why? Because somebody says something, would you persecute them? There must be something more to it than just words. There must be some truth behind our convictions and what we preach here as a church. I'm reminded of this Equality Act that is getting through Congress, which will inevitably operate against the conscience of the Christian church. But the good news is that even if we are persecuted, we will have heavenly rewards to come, even hundredfold, Jesus says. And the saying, well done, good and faithful servant. If you stand with Christ, then you stand in the line of faithful followers that chose the costly and dangerous, countercultural, sacrificial life that could mean little to no gain here on earth, but hundredfold in the life to come. Let's do it together, brothers and sisters. Let's do it together. In closing, I want to offer you just a few applications. A few applications as we close this up. Number one is to beware of false teachers. The Pharisees that, that Jesus warned about in these crowds, he warned against in this passage, were, were up to no earthly good and up, up to no heavenly good. Their religion was based on works. It tied up heavy burdens on people that could not carry the burden of, of their own laws and regulations. There are many false teachers today that many of them come in sheep's clothing, saying that salvation comes uh, with to the person whose good works outweigh their bad works. That's not true. Or to those who generously give to God. Or to those who speak in tongues. And many other works-based religions. Anyone who says that, that salvation is conditioned upon anything is a liar. Salvation comes by grace from Christ, imparted by faith alone, and faith is a gift from God. Secondly, let's guard against hypocrisy. We should guard ourselves against hypocrisy. As, as fallen creatures, this is a hard thing to do, right? I mean, I'm battling it every day. I have three little kids. You know, don't eat chips on the couch. And then afterwards, you know, I'm eating a bag of Lay's chips and crumbs all over myself. I'm a very sloppy eater, wiping the grease on the couch. Or, or you know, my kids are yelling, please stop screaming. Wait, I'm screaming. Oh my gosh, I'm such a hypocrite. And then even weightier matters. Those are obviously superficial, but we know the weightier matters in our own heart. And I can understand why the world would point their finger at the church and point their finger at Christians if they think that we have a list of do's and don'ts to obey. But the world doesn't see it that way. I mean, the world does see it that way, but the, the Christian knows that it is not that way. It is only by the indwelling Spirit of God that can convict our hearts and lead us on mission to obey Christ 
and be good representatives for him in the world. So let's continue to pray that God would sanctify us and make us more like him, which leads us to the last point here in the conclusion, to give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever, to quote the Psalms. As we continue and we come to the communion cup, if you would take that out, if you don't have one, there's some communion cups back here, and there's some communion cups over in the parking lot. As we come to this cup, we're reminded of the sacrifice of Christ. We're reminded of his body that was bruised for us and his blood that was shed for us on our behalf. Now, the only way Jesus could effectively atone for sin is that if he came to us completely sinless, the antithesis of a hypocrite, perfectly keeping the word of God, the word of his Father, and perfectly obeying him. Jesus came as the second Adam to represent mankind before God for those who sinned against God. But he also came as God himself, as God incarnate, the offended party to offer forgiveness to all who believe. So please take the bread. And in the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said eat this in remembrance of me we eat and remember Jesus and after that he took the cup he took the cup and it is no longer the cup of wrath it is no longer the cup of wrath poured out on sinners. This, and I think that's why we drink juice. I like drinking juice because it's sweet. It's sweet. And the sweet juice reminds us of the sweetness of Jesus' blood that does not stain us, but it cleans us to Jesus. Landon, come on up. As we think about the Pharisees in this passage, they were arrogant. They were not humble. But Jesus came as the humble one. And we humble ourselves before the cross, knowing that we have no condemnation. Those who are convicted by this message, who have hypocrisy in them, know that if you trust in Christ, you are no longer condemned. Christ took the condemnation for you. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, we come to you as, as hypocrites if we're willing to be honest with ourselves. <clears throat> and we're thankful for you, oh God, who came and you took that hypocrisy from us and you nailed it to the cross. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the love you have for us on this Valentine's Day, the love that is never ending, and that is unconditional. I pray that we would adore you today in these last couple songs and that we would put you on display well in this worth until you call us, call us home. <clears throat> in Jesus' name, amen.